0: Are you sick of this war? I'm sick of this war. I'm sick of all war. I hate war. War should be avoided unless it's absolutely necessary. This was not necessary. And America could have done more to prevent this from happening. What we were focused on instead, I can't believe it, but it's true. Climate change. Even in intelligence documents meant to protect us, we weren't talking about what was really happening. We were talking about what may happen in a 100 years, a 1,000 years, maybe never, this climate change thing. We have documents that prove it. But first, here are some horrible things. I'm sorry that happened today in Ukraine. You know, I never really war in the elderly. I, they, they, they should not go together. Look at this poor woman crossing a river. Yikes. Bad stuff. Bad stuff. And instead of this, and this has been brewing for a very, very long time, you know what the administration loves to talk about? It's that phony issue that they're just dying to tackle.
1: You know what the Joint Chiefs told us the greatest threat facing America was? Global warming.
2: Climate change, perhaps the greatest existential threat to our very existence,
0: remains a looming threat. Climate change is a threat. It is real.
1: Climate change is a threat to the security of the United States and indeed to the security and stability of countries everywhere.
0: Thank you, John Kerry. Well, when senior government officials talk like that and journalists start repeating it, it has an effect. That's what they want to hear about. That's what they they control the agenda. And the defense and intelligence establishment responds. So there's a new document from the intelligence community. It's the um, the Annual Threat Assessment. It comes out once a year. It's not classified. It's actually public information, the Annual Threat Assessment. It's coordinated by the U.S. intelligence community and the uh, Director of National Intelligence. And what did they talk about? Here are the issues that dominate this document, just released in February. Climate change, there it is. Racially or ethnically motivated by COVID-19 pandemic. Weather extremes. Of course, white supremacy and health disinformation. In this document, not one word, everybody, about Ukraine. And guess what? Ukraine, they've been moving. Well, Russia has been thinking about Ukraine for decades, and they've been moving troops for months. This is footage from January. They're moving troops all around Ukraine, preparing for what they've done. Once again, America surprised when it shouldn't have been because we were focused on silly Matters that don't really apply. Finally, Joe is playing catch up again.
1: We're also taking a further step, abandoning imports of goods from several signature sectors of the Russian economy, including seafoods, vodka, and diamonds. Right, seafood, vodka, and diamonds. But we are steadfast
0: in not fighting for an inch of Ukraine. (laughs)
1: We're going to continue to stand together with our allies in Europe and send unmistakable message. We'll defend every single inch of NATO territory. NATO territory is not in dispute right now. Ukraine is in dispute, but okay,
0: that felt good to say it that way. Next.
1: We will not fight a war against Russia in Ukraine. That again, they keep
0: emphasizing. I think you may want to keep it in your back pocket because what happens? What happens, Joe? What does this mean? If they use chemical weapons, the Russians, if they do and they've been known to go there before, what are you going to do then? President Biden, your, your White House has said that that Russia may use chemical weapons or create a false flag operation to use them. What evidence have you seen showing that? And would the U.S. have a military response if Putin does launch a chemical weapons attack?
1: I'm not going to speak about the intelligence, but but uh, Russia would pay a severe price if they use chemical. Weapons.
2: Would
0: the U.S. <laughs> would the U.S. be Will this make Putin
2: stop his war?
3: A severe price.
0: What does that mean Uh, with the Obama-Biden administration? It meant tough talk, but absolutely no follow-up. When we say don't use chemical weapons, we mean it, or else there's no or else. Today, I want to make it
4: absolutely clear to Assad and those under his command, the world is watching. The use of chemical weapons is and would be totally unacceptable. And If you make the tragic mistake of using these weapons, there will be consequences and you will be held accountable.
0: Sounded so good, right? But in 2013, when chemical weapons were used on innocent people in Syria, what happened? Nothing. We did nothing. We talked a big game and then we allowed it to happen without any meaningful retaliation. And it could happen again. When you're weak once, you'll be weak again. And Putin noticed, she noticed, the whole world. You know, you said the whole world was watching Assad. The whole world was watching us. And we never respond appropriately, at least when Democrats are in charge. Seriously, it seems as simple as that sometimes. (sighs) Well... Putting that aside for a moment, Joe Biden has domestic politics to tend to. He is the head of the Democrat Party as well as being president, and he's confident in the record they can sell to the American people.
1: Coming out of the State of the Union, we are the strongest position we've been in in months. We have a record, a record to be proud of, an agenda that addresses the biggest concerns are here in American people's lives. The message that resonates. And now, now what we have to do is we have to sell it with confidence, clarity, conviction, and repetition. <laughs> Folks. Folks,
0: we're doing better than we've been doing in months. In months, this is not, this is not in months. First of all, we know what's been happening over the past couple of months. You can't fake us, Joe. And here's the deal. He is not a leader, not a businessman, and not honest. All of these come together right now. Take a
1: look. My message is it's time in this time of war. It's not a time of profit. It's time for reinvesting in America. And they hear it. You know, there is a there's an impediment to production in the United States. And it's called the bankers on Wall Street.
0: Unbelievable. We mentioned not a businessman, of course. Now, profit and reinvestment are not mutually exclusive. He is demonizing Wall Street all over again. And what he's talking about, as a friend of mine observes, anti-growth, anti-capitalist, Just a few seconds earlier, he said, oh, we're gonna sell the positive economic growth over the past couple of months. This is a bad, bad president. And he's got a worse vice president, believe it or not. Kamala Harris, spring break Europa. Yes, she's over there, not doing well. Is she being set up to fail? I mean, look, they know she's just not good anywhere she goes, and this was horrible. She was in Poland yesterday, today, Romania. And um, a pretty straightforward question that she should be ready for, totally through her, so she just kind of ignored it. And if I can ask you, Madam Vice President, President Biden has said that Americans will feel some pain for the
2: sake of defending freedom and liberty, but there does seem to be no end game in sight. How long should Americans expect? How long should we be bracing for? Um, this really sort of um, historic inflation and some
4: unprecedented gas prices.
3: Sure.
5: In terms of uh, the discussions that the president, Johannes, and I had, uh, they ranged in subject, including the issue of the Black Sea, and I'll let him explain in more detail as he would like, Uh, but We are, again, fully aware and apprised because we are in constant communication with the president, with his administration here, about the concerns that they have about the entire region and, frankly, the vulnerability. All you have to do is look at the map.
0: Something is wrong with her. I mean, this is kind of politics 101. You have to entertain the question in some way, shape or form before moving on to what you want to talk about, When she's not zoned out in such a peculiar way, pretending not to hear the question or maybe not even hearing it. She's giggling all over the place. We saw that. Yet the fake news, they watch this and any person with eyeballs and a brain knows she's failing. Yet they cover for her. This is David Ignatius, one of the. one of the go-to guys in the swamp, writes for the Washington Post. It's good to see uh, America's vice president on the scene in Poland speaking uh, as one of our uh, top executives only can, president or vice president, uh, on behalf of the American people to the people who who were suffering in this crisis. I thought that was good. It's good that she went out there. This guy is a paid observer, a journalist. He's supposed to notice things, right? he can't notice what everybody else can see, that she's lost, okay? And by the way, I've been there before, haven't you? Remember those oral exams when you didn't know anything? You didn't know the subject you were supposed to know? I'm talking about in school. Bart Simpson, who remembers the Simpsons, right? <laughs> On Model UN day, Bart was in charge of Libya. He knew he didn't know anything about uh, the country, and this is how he handled it, just like Kamala.
1: Okay, Libya? Exports.
5: Yes, sir, you American pig.
1: <laughs> nice
3: Dutch. Uh
5: <clears throat> let's see. Uh the exports of Libya are numerous in amount. One thing they export is corn. Or as the Indians call it, maize. Another famous Indian was Crazy Horse. In conclusion, Libya is a land of contrast. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well done, Bart. Kamala needs work, big time. Hi, Rob
2: Carson here. If you love watching Newsmax, you're really going to love listening to our new podcast. It's called the Newsmax Daily. I host it, and I give you the best briefing of the big news of the day, top newsmaker interviews, and even, yes, a few laughs. I know it's hard to believe. So if you're uh, driving, walking, exercising, just about anywhere, you can connect with the Newsmax Daily with me, Rob Carson. Find our podcast online or go to iPhone, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, and more, and start listening today.
0: boy, it happened again, somebody getting kicked off a plane for wearing a shirt that may say something that's not too uh, nice to Joe Biden. But this is America. You can say what you want, right? Not so. According to Delta Airlines, I want to meet Janelle Brooks right now. Janelle Brooks, uh, welcome to Newsmax. Great to see you. I know you had a little incident on the plane. You're coming back to California from D.C. Anyway, welcome. How are you? I'm doing pretty good.
5: Thank you so much for having me. How Thanks. are
0: you, so, by the way? Uh, pretty good. Thank you, sir. So, look, uh, first off, the shirt said we got to we got the, the shirt did not say, let's go, Brandon. All right. The shirt said what let's go, Brandon means, what it's code for. It had the F word, correct? Yes, sir. All right. Now, now, look, there are people who would say you shouldn't wear that on a plane, you know, whether it said, F. Biden or F. Pelosi, fair enough?, uh, yeah,
5: but they still show--day movies on Delta flight, so
0: <laughs> listen, I think I think more free speech the better and um so look, we're gonna see what went down, but do me a favor. Tell us what was going on in d c first.
5: Uh, I sat down with Senator Ted Cruz and one of the leaders of the convoy, the People's Convoy, and Senator Johnson. And uh, that's that's why I was living from D.C. pretty much. Was I had to head back to California, but,
0: yeah, you, I was just part of the People's Convoy. And you checked out the People's Convoy. Very cool. By the way, you're 18 years old. Is that right? Yes, sir. Fabulous. What do you do now? What are your plans for the future? Uh, my fi- my plans is to become a firefighter
5: out here in California, so... <laughs>
0: That would be awesome. That's a a cool job. All right, so listen, we have videotape. Uh, I think you were documenting this. This is on the ground in Washington, correct?
5: No, this was, and I had a layover from, I originally flew to Nashville for the night. Um, I booked my plane ticket a little late. I got the dates mixed up, but anyways, I was flying from Nashville to JFK, and uh, in JFK, in New York City, I was supposed to fly to Los Angeles, but
0: that is That's one really well. heck of a itinerary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nashville, yeah. JFK, you're trying to go to California. All right, so Nashville to JFK, so you can go to California from Washington. And uh, you're wearing the shirt. Let's see what happens.
5: If you do come on the jet bridge, flip the shirt in, outside, in and out,
0: right, so that word doesn't show, I will have to discipline the whole aircraft. no. Mm. I'm sorry about that, sir. It's just Delta policy. You cannot
1: wear it. And they did advise me also you would be on the no-flying list. Okay? So you want to come on in the jet race and just keep the shirt and get
0: everybody else to wear it? I didn't catch all of that. She's saying you're going to be on the no-fly list if you, what, don't get off the plane or take off the shirt or both?
5: Both. Come and find out. Um... First, it was originally if I don't take off my hoodie, and then they were still going to kick me off. So I took off my hoodie. I called one of the head organizers from the People's Convoy. He even told me to just take off your hoodie so you could get home. You've had a crazy few weeks, you know, just get there to your destination. So eventually, I did. And next thing you know, I still got, I still can't fly on Delta.
0: Okay, (laughs) let's see what happens here. Part two, please.
5: You have yet to show me something. All that right, has a it's policy. a policy,
1: and you can call, and we could go ahead and look it up online, right on the jet
5: page, the computer. If it's online, just pull it out up. your cell phone. But
1: that's not inconvenient. No, 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 so no, no. You're, You're
5: making this in an inconvenient, because okay. last time I so checked, I live in the United defense. States of so America with the First, first Amendment freedom of press, press, press. freedom okay. of speech, or freedom of religion. Sorry, do I not? Ma'am, do I not? No, 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 do I not? Ma'am, do I not? Okay. Do I not have the freedom of press or freedom of religion or freedom of speech anymore in this country?
4: It's something very
1: simple.
5: It's not simple. It's not simple. My dad, the the plane, so no, no. Not my dad served in the United States. No, no. My dad served in the military, it. so I got the freedoms today. Um, and now you're telling me okay, not to take sir. off my hoodie. No problem.
3: Wow.
0: Okay. Wow, man, you really uh, you really gave it to her. You really gave it, and you told uh, your story. I had much more. <laughs> All right, let's see part three, please.
5: So I'm going to take it off, okay? So... I'm taking it off, okay? So he took it off. You guys forced me to wear my mask. I don't want to wear it. I can't wear my hoodie. It's off. I'm going to go sit down. You guys better not okay. bug me for the rest of the day. Whatever you guys come up and say to me will be we'll right. recorded. Will we'll be recorded and you
0: guys will get sued. I- and then that was it. You were off the plane.
5: Well, I sat back down and I sat back down and the day, that's when they advised me, hey, um, the captain doesn't want you on the plane either. Either way, so I was like, so I still took off my hoodie. My mask is on, and you guys are still kicking me off. And then when I found that I was getting kicked off the airplane, I just put back on my hoodie because I'm getting kicked off the airplane, So
0: right, and uh, hey, it might be cold in the airport. Why not? Oh, uh, it, it
5: was. <laughs> I'm from California, so anything below 60 degrees is usually cold.
0: <laughs> so look, um, let me ask you. I mean, f Joe, f Joe Biden is a pretty. Uh, it's a pretty powerful statement. Were you anticipating um, any kind of reaction? And and were you looking for one? So when I was flying
5: in from Nashville, it was raining. So that was the closest hoodie I had. All my stuff was packed. I was like the closest hoodie. You know, I wasn't thinking of anything. I'm like half asleep in the airport. Everybody's looking at me all weird. I'm like, why is everybody looking at me? It's five in the morning. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I forgot I even had it on. Uh, But no, that wasn't the intention. I was just really cold in the airport.
0: I understand. I understand. So, look, um, by the way, how did you finally get home?
5: (laughs) Well, they said I could have. They actually just kicked me to the curb. But if it wasn't for the great law enforcement out there that actually helped me get another flight, they gave me a list of flights. They said American Airlines has a flight leaving out of here at zero, you know, six hundred and six. And I was like, okay, cool. So they helped me. They escorted me down to the Terminal
0: and uh, catch a flight, which was about another thirty dollars so. All right, fabulous. I want to put up what Delta said, if you don't mind, and uh, Delta says this uh, regarding your case. Delta has long prohibited customers from displaying profane or derogatory words or images, and our expectation is for customers and our people to treat each other with dignity and respect always. Nothing is more important than a safe, civil travel experience for all. Um, how do you feel about that?
5: I feel, I mean, like it's hypocritical. They still show movies on airplanes where there's t- out everywhere, excuse my term. Uh, there's inappropriate movie scenes that's still out there. That's, if you fly right now, if somebody's probably flying, it, there's a nude scene on an airplane as we speak. Um, I, last time I checked, I thought we had the First Amendment in this country where we could freely address what we want to say. And political speech. I thought thought nothing could infringe political speech last time I checked, but currently not for Delta.
0: Janelle, I like you. I like your spirit. Uh, The F F word on a private plane, which Delta is a private company. I would I would recommend rethinking that next time. You know what I mean? I will I'll, next time. Yeah. OK. And uh, it does, by the way, it turns some people off. And those movies, I haven't seen one of those movies you're talking about on an airplane in a long time. I got to look a little bit more closely. I
5: Jan- have one for you. You'd like me to send it to you guys.
0: No, it's OK. Don't do that. <laughs> Janelle Brooks. Oh, yeah. we are- <laughs> Janelle Brooks. Thank you very much. You want to share your Instagram handle if you don't mind?
5: But yeah it's uh my first name and last name so it's up here it's j-a-u-n-e-i-l last name brooks
0: all right good luck sir all the best thank you guys so much. thank you we'll be right back
4: real heroes
3: real conflict
4: real
2: threats real heart now, there's a place America gets its
0: news. No agenda, just the facts. Newsmax, real news for real people. Well, I don't think they make war correspondents like this anymore. That's Rick Leventhal, longtime correspondent for the Fox News Channel. He's been in every hot spot you can think of, including and I think most importantly, most significantly, the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. Rick and I were in Iraq at the same time. He was with the Marines. I was with the Army. How did that happen? Uh, Rick Leventhal joins us now from Los Angeles. Rick, thanks to uh, you and your family for making you available. How are you, buddy?
4: I'm great, Greg. It's it's great to hear your voice. I actually just wrote about you uh, working on a book, and I talked about you in a chapter about the embed, uh, you being with the Army and beating me to Baghdad. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I uh, thank you. I like how this is uh, sounding so far in the book. Rick, uh, you did a spectacular job over there in Iraq. We're going to go thank into you. detail about what happened there. But I am wondering, you've been watching like we all have the coverage from Ukraine. I've been seeing a lot of guys standing on balconies talking. Um, I'll tell yeah. you how I feel in a moment. What do you think of the coverage by and large that we're seeing from Ukraine?
4: I think I already know how you feel about this, Greg, Um, and I think we agree. You can't really cover a war from a hotel. You can, but you're not able to fully report what's happening on the ground. The only way to really report on what's happening in a war is to be at or near the front lines where you can witness for yourself what's going on and report on. I understand the safety concerns. I understand people not wanting to put their people in harm's way. But if you want to tell the real story and the whole story and the full story, then you need to be in the action or close to it. And, you know, I, I heard Benjamin Hall say uh, we have more video than we know what to do with. But what are the sources of that video? How do you verify what is on that? video? How do you know that what you're putting on television is accurate or fully reflects the scene on the ground when that video was taken? It's, it's almost impossible. You kind of have to be there.
0: And I noticed that he's also and they are also talking about cities that they are hundreds of miles away from. It's like I'm in New York. I can't cover what's going on in Chicago. Some of these cities are that far away almost from him as Chicago is to me. And I don't think the viewer is sufficiently aware of that.
4: Well, one of the greatest things, as you know, Greg, about our embed experience was that we were with the guys who were doing the fighting. We were at the front lines or right near them. And we could see for ourselves what was happening on the ground and report on it. And that's what makes a real war correspondent, being in a war. And if you're in a hotel room, very comfortable, taking a shower and doing your hair and putting on a nice shirt and then going and stand in front of a camera hundreds of miles, in some cases, away from where the fighting's actually happening, you're not a war reporter. You're a hotel reporter.
0: Uh, I agree. Now, listen, we did have the advantage and the benefit. Look, we were going in with the U.S. military. We were embedding with the U.S. military. They had great gear. I quite frankly thought they had the advantage over the Republican Guard. But but who knows? And it got pretty dicey at times. I don't know who these guys could embed with. I don't see them embedding with Putin's forces. Uh, I'd have to think long and hard personally about embedding with Ukrainian forces up against Russian forces. So I, I it, it, it is a dilemma. And oh, by the way, yeah, there, there are plenty of people who are supplying the world with video, as Mr. Hall and you, you know, mentioned. So there uh-huh. is that. So I guess I can kind of understand their reluctance. But let's face it. It's not what it used to be.
4: Well, and then you see guys standing on balconies with their helmets on. And, you know, the fighting is far away from them, which is just almost equally ridiculous. You know, a couple of times I went to Libya during the uprising against Muammar Gaddafi. And we did not have the military there. We were not with Marines. We were trying to keep up with the rebel fighters who were fighting Gaddafi's army. And we were in a hotel. But every morning we'd get up super early and we'd get in a car and we would drive as close to the front lines as we could get. And that's how we would cover that war. We weren't with the troops, but we got as near to the troops as we could, as near to the fighting as we could. And we covered the war because we wanted to see what was happening. And we couldn't do that from 50 or 100 miles away.
0: And Rick, something else I've noticed, um, some of these reporters now are openly challenging the anchors, you know, debating them about policy and about opinion. And quite frankly, I remember possibly, you know, getting razzed by the Fox and Friends crew and vice versa. But, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't try to get in bill o'reilly's ear and straighten him out about his opinion and that's actually happening now
4: well i listen i i don't know about that i mean i i have strong opinions too and i know you do as well so if, if someone says something on the air that i think is wrong i i wouldn't hesitate to call them out on it um i understand there's you know you need to respect the person who you're talking to and i would and i do but um if I hear something that bothers me and I know differently from where I am, I'm going to go ahead and bring that up. I, you know, I, I always try to be real. So if there's something happening around me and what they say doesn't match what I know is to be true, then I'm going to bring that up. However, in this case, if the guy is in a hotel room hundreds of miles away from where something's happening that he says is happening, then I don't know. But um, I don't want to judge these people. I, they're, they're there because that's where they were sent and that's where they were put. And maybe they could push to move a little closer to the action. Maybe they're. They got pushed back. Like maybe they were like, no, you can't do that. I don't know. But it's, it's a very different experience. I can say that for sure. Sure.
0: You know, and Rick, that's why, uh, quite frankly, you and I can have this conversation. We've been there. I do think it's incumbent on people like us and others who haven't been to war. You're allowed to question things. And just because somebody is in a certain region, it doesn't make them you know, infallible. And I think that was a problem in Vietnam, actually. You had those correspondents like Morley Safer and others, and they were able to dictate the whole, uh, the whole national conversation. Hey, uh, Rick, um, you always do keep it real. Can you give us a preview of the book that you're working on?
4: You know what, Greg? I, I, I was only supposed to write 50,000 words, and I wrote 109,000 words. I don't know how I did it, um, but I'm covering Iraq, Afghanistan, 9-11, uh, Hillary's collapse at ground zero. Uh, the decapitation of Danny Pearl, the day Dan, Dale Earnhardt died at Daytona day 500, I was there. Um, my, 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 my rise from uh, humble beginnings to uh, senior correspondent, um, some other really compelling stories that I think people are really going to love, like chasing hurricanes or dozens of those. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting anecdotes in there that people have never heard before, stuff that happened behind the scenes, stuff that we could never report on television. But I'm really excited about the book, and I'm almost done with it, and uh, it'll be published, I think, early next year, like less than a year from now, right around the 20th anniversary of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, coincidentally.
0: Uh, oh, excellent. 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 We look forward to it. Please come back. And I hope you put in the, the, the scene where you are, a uh, make a cameo in the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. That better be in the book. It's actually not. No, OK. Not. <laughs> you and, want to add that as an epilogue? Or I, I, epilogue? I, 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 I think it's terrific. Hey, by the way, uh, Rick, as we say goodbye, uh, there's somebody one day I hope you meet. His name is Chuck Holton. He's a reporter here at Newsmax. And uh, gosh, looks he rescued a 96 uh, year old woman. Uh, At first, I thought that was somebody. Yeah, he just and she was suffering and had all kinds of issues and he just picked her up and and made it happen. So we're very proud of of Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty wild. Good for you, Chuck. (laughs) Thanks, Greg. You bet, Rick. All the best. Take care and uh, be in touch. We'll be right
1: back. A liberty-loving American takes on Washington, Hollywood, and the whole media establishment.
4: He's Chris Salcedo. Join his fight. Tune in to The Chris
0: Salcedo Show every weekday afternoon on Newsmax. Did you see this? A Ukrainian girl, 10, killed by drunken Russian soldiers. Drunken Russian soldiers. Moving on. This guy is a drunken Russian soldier Broke into a liquor store, drank half the store, and there he is, out cold. What else? We think liquor is a real problem over there, by the way. And back in 2014, Russian soldiers shot down an airliner over Crimea. It was a mistake, possibly a mistake uh, caused by alcohol abuse, a bunch of drug drunk soldiers playing with the weapon system. And look at this. The rate of alcoholism in Russia over 20%. Could this be alcohol vodka impacting operations on the ground? I know it sounds crazy, but it's not. Scott Eulinger joins us, national security expert, a former CIA operations officer and former CIA station chief in Moldova. Sir, welcome back to Newsmax. How are you? Great to be back, right? Sir I actually started wondering about this, and then I did some research, and uh, I'm told I'm not crazy, that there are soldiers, they are drinking, and it is affecting their performance on the battlefield. Can you back that up?
2: I believe it's true. Historically, uh, Russian society has had a great deal of difficulty dealing with alcohol, and actually... Uh, It's a little known fact that every year uh, at least I think it's at least 20,000 Russians die of alcohol poisoning. Now, that's a figure that's like 10 times that of any other industrialized nation. So that's a real problem. But I also think that some of the the sources of the drunkenness of Russian forces in Ukraine is because of the depression that has set in where the Russian soldiers realize that their leadership has absolutely let them down. Uh, The Russians are sustaining tremendous losses in this 14-day campaign. Ukrainian estimates are about 9,000, and U.S. intelligence is very conservatively saying 4,000. So I'd say split the difference. I think you're looking at like 6,500 soldiers dead in 14 days of fighting. In comparison, in 20 years of fighting, U.S. forces in Afghanistan, we lost 2,500 in 20 years. And they're losing much greater in 14 days. So these soldiers, a lot of them are conscripts. They uh, they're they're, have newly reported to the army. Some of them were drilling in Belarus and had no idea they were going to be taking part in an invasion until their tanks crossed the border. They're seeing, uh, they're seeing incompetence at the operational level, and they're being let down by their by their junior leadership and their senior leadership. And they're finding a ferocious Ukrainian army, which is using some of the state-of-the-art weaponry that's given to them by the West, such as uh, anti-tank missiles, which are having about a 95% effectiveness rate against Russian tanks, as well as Stinger anti-air missiles. So these guys are seeking refuge in alcohol, I think, because of the abysmal situation they're in. And plus the fact the Russian army hasn't really bothered to feed its troops very much. They're foraging in stores looking for food to eat. And of course, when they see alcohol, well, they're not going to turn that down.
0: Is the intelligence community, putting the alcohol issue aside for a moment, is the intelligence community surprised by how poorly the Russian military is performing? I mean, did they see this coming? Uh, I know a lot of folks, uh, personally, I'm shocked. And quite, I wonder if this should prompt the Biden administration to reevaluate. Perhaps we should send troops over there because it might be easier than we think. But number one, is the intelligence community surprised by all of this?
2: I think the, the U.S. intelligence community and European intelligence services, I think, are surprised at this development. Uh, Putin has, has made a big show of modernizing his military after the 2008 invasion of Georgia, and that was somewhat effective. However, the endemic corruption within Russian society and in their military has obviously precluded a lot of these reforms from really taking root. And so what we're seeing is massive. We see uh, soldiers, Russian soldiers that were in Belarus prior to invasion were selling their own diesel fuel to make a few extra bucks. Now, that's typical in, in the Russian army and the Red Army before it. And so what we're seeing is this kind of corruption has continued, poor operational planning, poor coordination of air assets and ground assets. The the Russian Air Force has not been flying that much, not only because of cloudy weather, but because of a lack of precision guided munitions and plus a fear that their own army anti-air missiles will shoot them down. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of show to the Russian army. But apparently there was a lot of rot that was not quite obvious to U.S. intelligence uh, before.
0: Now, you mentioned conscripts, by the way, and to me, that's um, synonymous with draftees. But I think that's right. It is. But is there a difference? I mean, is it like a conscript is somebody they grab right off the street and, you know, three minutes later, they're a soldier Uh, because when when they were drafted, they still went to boot camp and all those kinds of things. So what is a a conscript in this context?
2: They're really the same. Now, basically, I think, you know, a Russian army recruit is going to have less training than a U.S. army recruit. However, they have been trained. But for a lot of them, their first mission outside of Russia uh, in their perhaps their specialty was when they were sent to do um, operations in Belarus. And then it was sprung on them. That, oh, surprise, you're crossing into uh, Ukraine where you're going to be immediately greeted with bread and salt and hailed as liberators. And that has not turned out to be the case. Another important thing to understand is that the Russian people, more than most Western populations, is controlled by television. Um, A much greater percentage of Russians obtain their information from television than any other society in Western Europe. Fully 80 percent of the Russian population is almost totally dependent on television. They're watching government-sponsored programs, and they actually believe a lot of these things. There are a lot of videos online of Ukrainians who are calling family in Russia who resolutely refuse to believe that their houses are being destroyed. This is, you know, aunt, aunt to nephew telling them, my house has been destroyed, and their relatives are not believing it because that is not what the government television is telling them.
0: That is wild. Totally wild. Scott Eulinger, thank you very much for your information, the insights. Amazing. Former CIA operations officer, former CIA station chief in Moldova. Come back soon. I would love to ask you, by the way, maybe you can answer in 10 seconds. How do you get how did you get the job at the CIA? They don't exactly advertise or do they? How did you get the job? How did you reach out or did they reach out? How does it work?
3: I
2: actually applied for the job at the time, and to my surprise, was taken in. This is in the mid-'90s when very few officers were taken in, because in 1995, our troubles were supposed to be over. It was going yeah. to be a new epoch, and we were never going to have any problems after that.
0: Well, we're glad you, they took you. <laughs> I think they made the great, uh, great choice there. Scott Ulinger, to be continued. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Did you see that? Is that guy okay? Who was that guy? All these videos from Ukraine. Well, the war rages on. How is this going to end? What's going to happen? An interesting idea, an interesting idea to consider. It comes from, actually, Richard Nixon in an indirect way. Richard Nixon back in the early 1970s, uh, was in the middle of a somewhat analogous situation. We're going to learn all about it from Richard Nixon's grandson. And he joins us right now, Christopher Nixon Cox. There they are uh, about 30 years ago or so. And and here he is right now. Christopher Nixon Cox, welcome back to uh, Newsmax. How are you, sir?
3: Very good. Great to be on with you, Greg. So,
0: look, we know what's going on in Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about the analogy. I think the Yom Kippur War, what was your grandfather going through and and, and how does it relate?
3: Well, that was a very complicated time for my grandfather. October 1973, Watergate was starting to percolate. Um, The Saturday Night Massacre happened uh, during that month. And uh, the Arab states, backed by the Soviet Union at the time, saw an opportunity to attack Israel, which was a great friend of the United States and a great democracy of the United States. And, of course, many people in Europe were afraid to back Israel, to support Israel with anything significant, such as weapons, because they were afraid that their energy would be cut off, their energy supply from the Middle East. Many people in my grandfather's cabinet warned him that if you support Israel, the Soviets will get involved and you'll start World War III and it'll be a nuclear war. Much of that sounds very similar to what we're dealing with today. But my grandfather made a very important decision. He said, we're going to back Israel with everything that flies. And he pushed through the bureaucracy when the bureaucracy pushed back and said, send everything to Israel, weapons, planes, fuel, whatever it takes. And that allowed Israel to turn the tide of the war against the Arab states. Now, of course, Golda Meir, you don't have to believe my opinion that that saved Israel. Golda Meir said that my grandfather was the greatest friend Israel had because of that airlift. And because the the Israeli state was able to fight back against the Egyptians, that led to the peace accords, uh, the Camp David Accords in the late 1970s, and ultimately had peace in the Middle East. And I think it's an analogous situation today with Ukraine.
0: Very interesting. Now, but let me ask you this. And you know the world very, very well. You're an international businessman now and lawyer. It's a little bit very true. It's analogous. But if we were to do that in Ukraine right now, everything, if we gave them all the planes, everything we got, just back them a thousand percent. This is not Egypt. This is Russia. And it's a more potent. Out- what do you think your grandfather would have done in this in, in,
3: if he were still here? Greg, you're a smart guy like I am. If a bully confronts you, what do you do with a bully? You punch him in the nose and a bully backs down. And I think that Putin and Russia are acting like bullies and they're much weaker than they think. How long has this 40 mile long column been stuck outside Kiev? It's been taking days and days and days for them to move. If, if Ukraine had several A-10s, we could wipe out that column in a matter of days. And the Russians know it. And the Russians know that if the U.S. gets involved, they're done and that would embarrass Putin and he would never let that happen. I think what we have to do is it's good for the United States to get involved. We need to heavily resupply the Ukrainians, give them the weapons they need to fight back. They certainly have the willpower. They certainly have the people to fight back. All their citizens are rising up. Heck, 20,000 foreigners came and volunteered to fight against the Russians. There are plenty of people, they need arms and if they get arms and Russia realizes it's tangling with the best the United States has to send, They're going to have to find an off ramp and they're and and Putin's going to have to back down. And I believe, again, with a bully, you punch them, they back down.
0: You know, Christopher Nixon Cox, boldness, it runs in the family. That is a bold (laughs) idea. And you know what? Hearing it from you like that and knowing about uh, what happened in the early 70s, who knows this could work. Uh, Christopher Nixon-Coxon, there you are with your grandfather. Uh, Brilliant analysis. We appreciate it. You can go to Newsmax.com and read Christopher's uh, terrific piece on this. Thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. American Medicine Today features cutting edge medical and science innovators, previous surgical guests of the Banati Spine Institute, and a medical professional's insight on political issues plaguing our nation and healthcare. American Medicine Today, Saturdays at 4 on Newsmax. So. I'm on my spring break. (laughs) So this is what teachers do on their spring break. And so my students said to me, hey, Dr. B, what are you doing during the vacation? And I said, oh, I'm going to be working my other job. And they said, Dr. B, you have another job? And then it dawned on them, like, yes, I have another job. (laughs) So anyway. Dr. B, first of all, she's not a doctor. Secondly, Dr. B. And her second job is making partisan, nasty speeches, as she did today in Arizona. Totally, totally inappropriate. Folks, we want to know what you think. We have a special poll. Should the United States back a no-fly zone over Ukraine? We also want to know, what do you think of Biden's handling? Text INPUT, the word INPUT, to 39747. 39747, and we'll write right back. Thanks so much.